Welcome to Wolverine Reads, a theatrical podcast celebrating new plays. I'm Nathaniel Quinn, producing director of Wolverine Theatrics. So uh, I'm Nathaniel Quinn, the producing director of Wolverine Theatrics. Today I'm joined by playwright of Trixie 2.0, Kirsten Easton Huzzah. Am I saying it right? Have I been butchering your name? No, you said it correctly. Okay, great. I just, it's one of those that every time I look at it, I go, is it this? Is it, is it, yay, huzzah! You know, I'm like, huzzah! Oh. She, she <laughs> never hears enough of that, I am sure. Um, so if you would be so kind, before we dig into the, 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 the play itself, uh, a little bit about you, if you wouldn't mind. You know, uh, we have your name, Kirsten Easton Huzzah. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your background as a playwright and how you came to that uh, why playwriting? And then give us some one boring piece of information about yourself. So, um, so I was born and bred in the suburbs of Southern California. Um, I grew up amongst <laughs> the palm trees. And uh, I went to college at Occidental College. And while I was there, I got to take a playwriting course and just totally fell in love. Um, and they also had a new play festival where they brought in artists that worked in the LA area because that's where Occidental is. So I got to work with professional actors and a professional director when I was still um, technically a teenager. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that was really cool. And uh, so after I had that experience my junior year of college, I did it again my senior year and decided that I wanted to go to uh, graduate school for playwriting. Um, so I went straight out of college to grad school, moved across the country from Southern California to Southern Illinois, um, which is a very different. That's a big change. Very different culturally. Um, but that was where I wrote Trixie 2.0. It was my first year of grad school. Um, and obviously since have been doing lots of rewrites um, on this play. But um, that was sort of how I got started with playwriting is um, getting to take a class in school. Um, so let me see, a, a fun fact about myself. Boring, um, a boring fact about yourself. A boring fact about myself. <laughs> um, I know, because that takes the pressure off, right? Um, I, both of my parents are high school math teachers. Um, I always think that's really interesting because I, you know, have tapped into this very different sort of you know sure. <laughs> yeah the, the the world of words and imagination versus the concreteness of numbers oh yeah yeah for sure and and then you're not writing things like proof or the nether or that that take that very concrete numeric approach to things yeah um i don't know if you're familiar with the myers-briggs personality type yep. But um, my, it's so funny, both of my parents and my brother are all ISTJs, um, so very sort of, you know, methodical, very much thinkers, and I'm an ENFJ, so I'm an extrovert, I'm very much a feeler, um, and so I, I feel like sometimes, particularly when I think back on my childhood, there were definitely times where, you know, I was told I was, you know, being too emotional or, you know, crying too much and now as an adult I'm like that's just because we had different personality types. <laughs> <laughs> well it's so interesting that that's you and your personality type 
and and the, some of the characters in Trixie 2.0 are very much they a lot of emotional depth, but they're not touchy feely. They're not uh, grown in a place in a heart space, almost as it were. They're they're uh, Doreen wants to have sex specifically for having a baby and it's this process that you do versus Walt who wants to have sex to have sex and you know the the feeling and the pleasure uh but it's it's very much not a let's hold each other and cuddle it's like no let's just skip to the the fucking in both cases you know I think um I have a feeling that Doreen is a feeler but so many years have gone by and she's starting to panic and so you know, taking taking that like slow and you know more organic way is probably how she would normally do things. But at this point, she's like, "No, like we just need to we need to take a methodical approach to this family thing." <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about your process as a playwright. Um, where do you draw ideas from? What inspires you? What kind of theater do you like to go see? And does that affect your writing? Yeah, I, so I, I feel like I really, I love plays, I think, to start. Um, I think a lot of times when people talk about like, oh, what do you like to see in theater? A lot of times it's musicals. And I, I like musicals, but when I go to New York City, because now I live, you know, only two hours sure. away from there, um, I want to go see a straight play. Um, I would much rather go see something like that over a musical. Um, and I think I like comedies. I like dramas. Um, I, I really like to see characters' experiences on stage that I can identify with. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, that means um, seeing work by, you know, female playwrights or work that features women, um, because that's how, like, I identify myself. Um, so, so that's sort of what, what I like to see. And I guess that tends to be the types of playwrights that I enjoy reading as well. So it's plays written by females that focus on females. And that's the majority of what inspires you? Or do yeah. you, are, are you, are you one of these incredibly lucky people that's like, oh, there's a leaf falling and, and now I have an entire play about it? No, 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 no. I think and um, I, I don't say that in, in sarcasm by any, like, I am incredibly jealous. Like, how, you just wrote this entire story about how a leaf fell. I am so envious of you. We're like the guy in um, American Beauty who's just so inspired by the, the plastic bag. Yeah, yeah right? I, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe sometimes if I'm feeling extra inspired, but I feel like most of the time I pull stories from either my own life um, or stories that, uh, you know, I read about online. So like Trixie, for example, um, was inspired by actually a documentary um, that ironically my husband found for us to watch on Valentine's Day. Um, actually back when we were in college, because um, he and I have been together since we were in college. Um, and, and so that was where that came from. It, it was just basically a documentary about, um, the invention of sex robots. So it was sort of like a piece where it was like, look at these things that we've invented and sure. like kind of talking to some of the inventors and, and some of the, some of the people that were interested in them, but that was where that idea came from is I think my brain starts to think, you know, what, what are these people really like? 
Um, and when I was in college, I was actually, I was a sociology major first and then added the theater major later on. And so I think I very much approach my plays with that sort of sociological lens of like, why are people doing these things this way? Like, what is it about them? Both from a, you know, a societal perspective, but then also from that, you know, very individual, like psychology perspective too. Um, and, and so I, I've always really been interested in what makes people tick. Sure. Uh, and so I think it, as a playwright, you know, you get to really explore that in all of your characters. And I think what's fun about this play in particular is like they're doing just kind of extreme things. Um, and so, you know, trying to find reasoning for why would someone do this? What, what would drive someone to make this decision? Sure. Um, and, and, and humanizing that, right? It's like, you know, Walter is probably not your typical protagonist in that sense. I, I don't think he's, you know, like your all-American hero. Um, <laughs> there's, still, there's still some things about him that have to make him likable in some way, or at least right. make the audience invested in him. Um, but I think it is interesting to explore that of like, you know, why, why is he feeling this way? And what happened? has happened to him to, sure. to drive him. Well, I know that I know that's a conversation that we had early on, we being you, myself, and the cast after I think our first read through, maybe the second read with the play was it's it, it's so easy to want to vilify him for the way that he does things, Walter, him being Walter and, and his approach to things. Um, and the challenge then for me at least was trying to curb that and go, no, we do need to like this guy. He's not a bad guy. He just doesn't know how to communicate. We learn why he doesn't communicate this fetish well um, and the scarring that that happened from that. And it was, it ended up, I think, being just, and it, it was not ended up, that's the wrong way to put it. Um, it was just lovely, lovely writing for a very humane person for this, uh, for whatever reason, still in, in 2020, this taboo subject of fetish. Oh, you have a fetish. No, you're a... That's dirty, yuck, you know? Thank you for that, it was lovely. It's very interesting too, uh, to, to date the production, that, the time that we put this production up, it's in the midst of, of COVID-19. Um, so everything's kind of shut down and it's very funny because I know you were sending me articles about this. Do you find yourself seeing more and more things about uh, uh, sex robots and dolls around? I mean, I do feel like now that I've written this play and, um, you know, people that I went to school with have seen a reading of it. And now like people like you who I've worked with on this podcast know about it. I feel like now I'm a magnet for people to send me <laughs> articles anytime, <laughs> oh, no. anytime they do come out. But I also do find it fascinating. And I think, you know, now like in 2020, even compared to when I first started writing the play back in you know, 2013, 2014, you know, the robots have gotten a lot more sophisticated. Right. And so I feel like, you know, even just in terms of the technology, it's, it's fascinating. And, but I think too, it also, you know, the, the more and more advanced that it gets, the more that those robots sort of fall into that uncanny valley. Right. Which is, which is that phenomenon where when things are too close to um, a real human, it becomes creepy. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, I, I find it fascinating. The, the interesting thing is that I think the article that I sent you was talking about how a lot more people are purchasing these robots. And they had also said like, oh, a lot more couples are purchasing the robots. Right. 
And, um, you know, the problem with Walter is not that he's purchasing the robot, is that it's, it's that he's lying to his wife about it. Right. Um, so I think that's sort of interesting, too, of, you know, how it, we're not really supposed to judge Walter for, for having Trixie, um, although I think he judges himself. Uh, we're judging him because he's lying about it, right? right? <laughs> I, think, I think the person that's easily enough to judge is... Uh... Uh, the guy he buys it from. Yeah, Dr. He, he Jensen. Is Dr. Jensen, because uh, he is very much like, th there is some damage done there and why he has these robots and the way he treats them every time, and the way he even treats Walter is like, wow, there's, this guy could have a play unto himself. Yeah, yeah. I think though too, Dr. Jensen makes some good points. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about that character is you do, you know, you do kind of hate him, but he also isn't wrong. Right. I asked that first question about seeing more and more stuff uh, about the sex robots in the world today. Um, because even recently on my way to work out off the beaten path, uh, there are now signs like the, the yard marker signs, uh -huh. for, like, like political signs, that kind of deal that are, are, like stop in here we have new sex robots and i was like oh is that is that trixie is that <laughs> <laughs> am i am how long has this been here and am i just now noticing it from doing this show um so uh, my next question for you how is this process for you as far as workshopping and playing with the script how is this different is it different uh in working a in a podcast format and, and like working with us at Wolverine Theatrics, we try to do a truncated process um, where you gave us three, three new drafts in addition to the draft we began with in just over two and a half weeks. Is that typical for you as a playwright as you're workshopping something? Was that uh, uh, daunting? Was it refreshing? I feel like it, it just depends. Like I have done that before. I will say like it, there were times where it was painful just because I was under those tight deadlines. But I also feel like it, I wanted to do a lot more rewrites with that play because I had let it sit for a lot longer than I normally do. Um, and so, yeah, there were certain times where I was like, oh, you have to sit down and you have to work on your drafts because you have to, you know, submit it by your deadline. Um, but it always feels, it feels good then when you get to hear the actors read it aloud because then it, the payoff is there. And I feel like for me, that's why I feel like I really only could ever be a playwright in terms of being, you know, a different, like a type of writer mm -hmm. because I crave that uh, that feedback, right? Like being able to hear your words aloud where if you were writing novels or poems, you don't necessarily get to have that. Um, so, so it's nice, right? It's like you put in all this hard work, but then you get to hear your words aloud. And, and sometimes sure. like I told you, there were times where I was sitting here like pumping my fist in the air because like the lines were landing really well. Um, and then there were other times where I was like, Ooh, nope, that's not quite right yet. I need to go back and fix that. Um, cool. so yeah. Cool, cool. Um, well, I hope that we have done justice to your words. Um, I, I, having not been a playwright and being envious of playwrights and how you can and create a world through words that way, the way that you do, um, I often worry as a director that 
how I'm interpreting things is not the intent of the playwright. And I think that's like the, the, the fascination and the danger of the theatrical performance itself. So I hope that we have done you justice in the way that you, you would have liked you, or you do like your script to have been done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think too, as a playwright, um, you have to write your play knowing that some, you know, other people are going to be interpreting it. Um, I think one, you know, way to look at it is, a, you know, a play is a blueprint that mm -hmm. other people are taking and actually building. But um, I had a director actually when I was in college, <laughs> when I was doing new play festivals, so I was, you know, a college student, but had a professional director who told me um, he had questions about my play. And I said, like, I was like, oh, I don't know. And he was like, well, you better decide because if you don't, I'm going to make a decision and that might not be what you want it to be. So even though I felt a little bullied at, at that point <laughs> in time, um, I think it was really good advice because I think it, it means that as a playwright, you have to make sure that your dialogue is so strong that, um, that what you want to say is coming across clearly. Sure. The playwright, you, and I always tell my playwriting students this, you own the dialogue. No one can change the dialogue on you. But stage directions can be, you know, left off if they want. So, um, so if you really want a character to be in a red dress, it's not enough to just say in the stage directions, like Maria's wearing a red dress. You have to have another character in the play say, Maria, what a beautiful dr red dress you're wearing. Right. Um, you know, cause then the director can't put her in blue. Um, so I think, you know, knowing those things as a playwright that are important to you to keep the integrity of, and then other things where you're like, you know what, I could do this a couple of different ways. And I'm excited to see how other people interpret right. it. It was, it's very funny to hear your experience in that way. When I was in grad school directing a show, uh, uh, a wonderful playwright friend of mine, Venetia Coleman, gave me this script and it was beautiful and imaginative and there was all this room for interpretation. Uh, and of course the instructors as a director were like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Do your research, talk to the playwright. And she would just look at me and go, I don't know. That's up to you. I don't, it's your play now. It's in your hand to do what you're going to do with it. And it was like, it was the same kind of thing, like the opposite of bullying. Like I just, I need an answer for these other people because they need an answer from me. But I appreciate that you've given me so much interpretive room. Just come on and help me out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my last question for you today, uh, and if, if you don't have an answer, because this is kind of on the fly, uh, do you have a favorite line from Trixie? And why, if you do, why is it your favorite line? Ooh. That is such a good question. <laughs> we ask the tough questions here. I mean, I, I love the... I love the exchange between Walter and Doreen about going to the portrait studio um, <laughs> because my mom loves to take our family to JCPenney to do those portraits and like and has even when we were adults <laughs> and so I mean it's not really integral to the plot at all of Trixie but it's kind of a funny little detail um, that <laughs> mimics my my life and my experience so i guess that she says something like what are we supposed to do go sit between the graduating seniors and the the families with a baby just the two of us don't be you know 
Like, yeah. Oh, I guess when you put it that way, it's a little weird, but there's not really anything wrong with it, but. Yeah, I think that was how my brother and my stepsister and I always felt. It's like, you know, <laughs> she'd, she'd drag us there and we'd all be in like matching color coordinated shirts and we were like, aren't we just a little too old for this? <laughs> Uh, Look, lady, I can see that box of toys. It's not going to do anything to make me smile any more than it did when I was two. Come on. <laughs> or the like the very elaborate posing, especially when you get, you know, past just two people, right? It's like, right. okay, now you have to like lean your arm on her shoulder. Okay, but relax your fingers. And then <laughs> you're going to sit on this stool, but I'm going to turn you this way. And... <laughs> And then it ends up looking like a twister board halfway through the game, and then they tell you to smile. Yeah, we've got a really great photo where it looks like they were planning to put another person in, but <laughs> didn't. And so there's this like big empty space like near my brother. <laughs> it's just so that's like one of our favorite family photos. Is we always joke like, oh, there was supposed to be another family member there, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> They're just a no-call, no-show. It is it is what it is. It's fine. I mean, yeah, no offense to JCPenney photographers, but, you know, they're not the, they're not the best photographers in the world. So, so sometimes their right. the photos were not. Hey, you know what, what? Whatever you can do to pay the bills. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what JCPenney's model is or how they go about hiring photographers. <laughs> they could just be people they give a camera. Who knows? <laughs> They're like, you're done in women's today. <laughs> today I've seen your Instagram. You could take a picture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, please don't anybody stop following our podcast if you're a photographer from JCPenney. We appreciate you. We just don't understand your day-to-day -day, uh, work life. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, uh, I've got a note here that I'm trying to figure out how to work into this, and I'm just not sure if it will or not. Um, so I want to thank you, one, for giving us this wonderful, wonderful play and letting us put it together and put it up in a podcast format. And I, again, I hope that we have done you the justice that, that you hoped to hear from the words in the play. It's, to me, is so interesting and fascinating to try to figure out how to put, it, put live theater in a podcast format versus a, a stage reading where somebody gets to see it once or twice or, you know, a Zoom session where everybody's in their own apartment or, you know, in a location where we can spread out a little bit, uh, given the parameters of our current climate. Um, and so it's, it's very unique. And I'm curious for your opinion on this as well. And uh, in, in hearing some of the things and knowing that there are visual elements that really lend themselves to your script if you still get that as the, if you still get that as the playwright through the aural elements, through the sound as we, excuse me, as we engineer the, the sound for this world. Yeah, I think um, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Um, and when I, uh, when I was living in Colorado and working an administrative job where I was on my computer all day, I listened to so many plays as podcasts. So I think just the medium itself is, you know, allows more accessibility than going to see live theater because it's something I could do while I was working. Um, so, so that was, 
I mean, I think that alone is really cool. But I think too, there's something about, um, and this is the same thing when, you know, you're reading a novel or, or listening to an audiobook is, you know, there's room for you to imagine the world of the play in your head. Um, so I think that's sort of interesting too. So you think about Trixie, for example, um, if we were in a live theatrical setting, we would have a body on stage that was playing Trixie. Um, and, and that's a human body, right? It's not a, a robot, because there are lots of plays that have actual robots in them. Um, and so I think, you know, that's sort of an interesting element is that when you're listening to it, we can hear, you know, Maya's voice, but um, imagining, you know, what exactly she might look like, I think is kind right. of interesting. Um, and it's such an interesting and um, cool exercise in creativity, right, for our, for our audience and our listeners, so. Well, again, uh, thank you, Kirsten. This is Kirsten Easton Huzzah, the playwright of Trixie 2.0. Uh, thank you again for this wonderful script and, la, 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 bleh, and allowing us to play with it as our, our second production with Wolverine Reads. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Trixie 2.0 is written by Kirsten Easton Huzzah, directed by Nathaniel Quinn, and featuring the voices of Heath Howes, Maya Gyrum, Ethan Lee Knowles, Emma Maxfield, Samantha Jo Staggs, and Savannah Svoboda, and features original music composed by Scott Hurst. <laughs>